Richard Belpert and the Tijuana Brass, I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome Lindsay Adler, Yankees beat writer for The Athletic, to the program. Lindsay and I discuss what life is like on the beat right now, how she's approaching writing during this delay, the anticipated state of the Yankees roster should baseball return later in the summer, and what form we'd like the game to take when it does. Plus, Lindsay shares what it was like to be on the ground in the final days of Yankee spring training and offers her advice to those who have taken out baking as a pandemic activity. She would also like everyone to know before they listen to this episode that she is doing fine on a relative basis. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. As you've no doubt heard, the delayed start to the season has hit Fangraphs pretty hard. We rely on advertising revenue that's generated by site traffic to build all the great tools that you use, pay the salaries of those who write the articles that you enjoy, and to cover the server and stats costs that are essential to keeping the lights on. With no baseball, we've seen a lot fewer clicks and thus fewer dollars. We know that now is a tricky time to be asking for help, but if you're in a position to do so, we hope that you'll consider an ad-free membership or think about donating a membership to another reader, or perhaps donating to the site directly. Your support will help to sustain all the great work at Fangraphs, including Eric Longenhagen's top prospect list, Craig Edwards and Dan Zimborski's work attempting to quantify the effect of a shortened season, and Ben Clement's thoughts on MLB's various proposals to get the season started again. We want to thank you so much for your support. I hope that you and your family are staying safe and well. With that said, I take you now to my conversation with Lindsay Adler, Yankees beat writer for The Athletic, which begins right now. So I have started recording, and I'm joined by Lindsay Adler of The Athletic and... <laughs> my G-Jets commonly. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. How are you? You know, I'm I'm okay. It's an odd question. I feel like that's a, a much more loaded question than it even typically is. I don't know how interested culturally we often are in the answer to the how you are question, but now it's very fraught. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been telling people a lot, like, I think I'm doing better than other people seem to see me as. Like, I'll be like going about my day and then like four people will be like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no, what energy am I giving off that I don't know about? How does everyone know that I'm like losing my mind before I do? Yeah, I've had that experience a couple of times and it's like, oh gosh, what am I signaling with these tweets? I need to be more, I need to be more careful with the tweets. <laughs> people are going to worry about me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I feel like my default answer to that question has become like, I'm healthy. And so are the people I know and care about. So all things considered, we're doing okay, you know? Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're doing okay. I thought it would be interesting for Fangraphs listeners and listeners of the show to, to hear from you because, you know, we have a couple of people at the site who do clubhouse work, but we obviously don't have anyone who works for Fangraphs in a dedicated beat capacity, and all of us are adjusting to a new normal, but I think of all the people in baseball media, the beats probably have had the greatest disruption to their daily lives and their routine, so I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to hear from you, and you cover the Yankees, as I'm sure everyone listening to this show knows, and so the Yankees were sort of at the mm, forefront is really the wrong way to describe it. They were interacting with and butting up against the realities of the pandemic, I think, earlier than 
a lot of teams because they had one of the first confirmed positive tests in the greater baseball ecosystem. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe for folks at home what the scene was like in Florida when the first Yankees minor leaguer tested positive for COVID-19. What was that like for the team and what was that like for you? Well, it was interesting because I left, so they shut down baseball on a Thursday, and then I returned home at the strong urging of people like you. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I was being very stubborn. So I returned home on Saturday, and then I think it was maybe a couple days after that that it became public that the player tested positive. And I think the thing that was really strange was that, you know, I would say I was taking this seriously pretty early because I am a germaphobe. And (laughs) the idea that like there would be a shortage on hand sanitizer was like actually really terrifying to me pretty early on. But, you know, it was it was not necessarily business as usual in the days leading up to it, because obviously they kicked us out of the clubhouse and whatnot. But, you know, the the last day before they shut it down, Rudy Gobert had tested positive and the NBA had had shut down and I was just at the backfield at the at the minor league camp and mm-hmm. you know I mean we're kind of not necessarily joking about keeping our distance no one was really high-fiving but like you know I was saying to people I knew like six feet six feet when we were talking or whatever when we were not standing six feet apart right and so it, we kind of knew it was coming and kind of growing or at least I did but it it really wasn't like as soon as the NBA shut down, you know, the next morning, baseball kind of started going into like bubble mode. And so they, the Yankees, I think the player, the player started feeling symptoms the next day on that Friday. So I had been in the minor league facility Thursday, the player showed symptoms Friday and did not come into the camp. And then they did a deep clean and got a positive diagnosis for him that Saturday night. And so I think it was just really strange for them. I mean, it really kind of sent their sort of their upper management into hyperdrive. You know, Brian Cashman stayed down there and was handing out meals. Their farm director, Kevin Reese, who lives in Tampa, he was assisting with the meals. Damon Oppenheimer, their scouting director, was helping with it. And they just had, you know, 150, 170 guys who were just quarantined either in a hotel or or in the greater Tampa area and you know it it seems almost like the time passed really quickly mm-hmm. but also I cannot believe that the organization kind of got through quarantining 170 minor leaguers as well as they did yeah yeah I would imagine that the I mean we probably won't ever know the all of the hurdles they faced either logistically or just convincing players that they had to take it seriously although i i remain i remain very impressed with the minor leaguer who first tested positive seemingly mm-hmm. doing exactly the right set of things yep. at a moment when like the information about what everyone was supposed to be doing in response to this was changing so quickly so mm-hmm. props props to that kid who did a, a very good job but it probably reveals just how tricky it would be to affect that kind of isolation on an even broader scale if baseball's plan for Arizona season were to come to pass because I can't imagine how hard it was for the Yankees to do that for just 170 guys and then you have to multiply that across you know 30 teams and all of the support staff and the folks who would be in the valley supporting them it just seems like such a massive undertaking yeah you're right maybe it does kind of 
provide an interesting, uh, maybe not test case, but you know, they they did have to think about who's delivering food and yeah. or who's who's distributing food, and so then you know, while you have the players and most of the coaches quarantined, you have the general manager, the farm director, and clubhouse attendants, you know, still at risk because they are they are doing this work and. You know, I, I like the idea that major leaguers would just like all live in, you know, each team would live in one hotel because what I heard while the players were in quarantine was it was like, you know, one group of players had like gotten a, a mini hoop for their hotel room, like some were playing mini golf in the in the hallway, like just like funny things like that, like things that, you know, it's it's basically like if you went to like summer camp, I yeah. think so. Yeah, I had, you know, we're all trying to figure out what to write and talk about throughout this. And I had had a conversation with Ben Clemens on our staff who ended up writing about the Arizona plan and had just speculated like, well, what if, you know, we could play part of the season in Vegas? There are all these empty hotel rooms and, you know, they have even fewer fields in the greater Vegas area than there are in Arizona. And he's like, I don't know how feasible that is. And then Passon did his report. And I was like, well, it's nice to know that baseball had the same idea that I did, but kind of a bummer that everyone hates this idea <laughs> that I had. So, But yeah, so you made your way home to New York mm-hmm. and are now holed up in a New York apartment with <laughs> with John and a dog. What has what has your day-to-day been like as a beat writer? I know that all of our day-to-days are wildly fluctuating, sometimes just involve like scrolling through Twitter or baking, but what is the life of a beat writer right now? You know, I think the thing that's really tripping me up is that it, it really changes week to week like you know the the thing about a baseball season is you can project like okay here's when the all-star break is okay Mm -hmm. here's when you know here's when I need to start thinking about saving material leading up to the postseason you can you know as I found with the Yankees and all of their injuries last year you your plans get blown up all the time but you can still kind of project things more broadly you know I was able to if, if you know if if a story got kind of blown up by a guy getting injured in, you know, June or July of last year, I knew that I could save that material for the postseason. Whereas right. now, it's like, you know, the first couple weeks, you know, the first week I covered minor league stuff. And so that was just a lot of reaching out to people, making new connections, kind of trying to get a gauge on what was a really rapidly changing situation. I've written about what the 1981 team did during the strike. And then I wrote about the system the Yankees are using for their pitchers now. Mm -hmm. But the thing now is that, you know, the first few weeks, every time I would talk to someone, if they didn't really have an answer on something for me, it would be like, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. Everything's changing really quickly. Or if I did talk to someone, then the circumstances would change the next day. Sure. And now it's kind of like, yeah, guys are doing their pitching and I'm sure hitting, you know, programs to the best of their ability. But there's really nothing going on. There yeah. is now we've really hit that lull where it's like, okay, so what? What is there to say about baseball when you know it's it's not the it's not the top thing on my mind, but I understand that it's something that people would like to read as abstraction. So I spend a lot of time basically anxiously brainstorming. Mm-hmm. My poor editor has dealt with like a wave of. Lindsay's workaholic anxiety. Um, <laughs> me just being like, I can't write four reported stories now like I like I normally do, and her being right. like, Lindsay, Lindsay, it's a pandemic. 
Yeah. <laughs> but what I've kind of been trying to do is use Mondays as kind of an anchor. So Mondays, I kind of assess what the look, what the week looks like. And then I send my emails. I, I, I think about my brainstormed stories that I'm keeping kind of loosely in a Google Doc. And I try to reach out to people about those so that I can see, you know, what's going to work, what's going to fall through, and then just try to kind of poke away at those things throughout the week. But the thing is that being on a beat is exhausting because, you know, it's long days at the ballpark. It's it's flying. It's rarely having days off. But because games are typically at 1 p.m. or 7 p.m., there is a lot of structure. Sure. And so suddenly it's like I feel like because I don't have, you know, so let's say that I wanted to write a story on Brett Gardner right now. If I were in the season, I could, you know, catch him at the ballpark. Maybe it would take like one or two days depending on his his schedule, but I could catch him then. And then, you know, to supplement it, I could just flag down the hitting coach as he's coming off, off the field after batting practice. And so not only is it more difficult to really get the material for stories like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. There just isn't as much to write about the players and the and the team to begin with. And so it kind of feels like it is a lot of maybe not busy work, but it, it's a lot of it's a lot of trying and failing and a lot of um effort to reach like a much smaller percentage of actually turning things into stories right now. But so it's probably a good exercise for my brain creatively trying to think about what how to write about baseball when there is no baseball. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that, you know, a lot of people are dealing with this, but I think the the idea of like workaholic types suddenly faced with both a desire to be productive in order to distract themselves or to feel like you're, you know, secure in your job versus your ability to actually have productive stuff to do as an output like that's a I know that I've been struggling with that it's like I'm busy because we still have to run the site it's not as busy as it usually is the world is stressful sometimes I feel very undone by like relatively normal tasks but you still have to put all that energy somewhere you've been putting a lot of that energy into baking Mm-hmm. What have you been baking, Lindsay? And then I'm going to ask you more questions about the the beat and the Yankees, but people really want to know about your breads, all the various breads. Well, I picked up baking as a hobby in probably 2018, my first season on the beat, because it was kind of then that I realized that I had finally officially taken my biggest hobby and my biggest passion and turned it into my career. Yeah. So my therapist was like, hmm. Maybe you should try to find something that is still a hobby to you. So I, you know, when when everything got shut down, the, the silver lining was kind of like, okay, I can go work on some of these projects. And so I've been really working on my bread baking because I feel like that is the most pragmatic way to bake in a pandemic. It offers like a million different ways to try to do the same thing and you know, in, in new and exciting ways and new and exciting ways to fail. And it's it's a little bit like doomsday prepper, too, because yeah. <laughs> if, if I have bread, I can live, which, you know, I will say after doing a lot more reading on the like bread making community, the line between preppers and like hobbyists is like actually very, very thin and much closer than I thought. But <laughs> You know, I it just doesn't make sense for me to be making things like, you know, working on like my cake decorating right now because yeah. it's like 
you know, John and I cannot just eat a cake. I've been stress baking cookies at like 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. a lot. Yeah. But yeah, mostly I've just been trying to kind of look at, you know, things like bread baking is something that I can um, use as kind of an extended project and maybe use to combat my perfectionist issues because a lot of things can go wrong and it's kind of a low stakes way for me to confront trying and failing and succeeding over and over and over while I am stuck in my tiny apartment. <laughs> Pretty sure after this podcast, I'm going to get a lot more like, hey, are you okay? Text messages. But <laughs> We can, I will make sure uh, when I do the, the intro that I indicate that you are in fact okay, regardless of whatever people <laughs> might hear in the, in the content to follow. What has been your favorite thing that you have baked in our pandemic times? So my long-term goal is to execute croissants, which are really difficult. And the one time that I got actually kind of close to doing it well, I screwed it up because I don't know how to do math. So I cut the triangles wrong. Oh. Um, so I've been trying to work on increasingly complicated doughs. So it took me three times, but I actually did execute a good loaf of brioche. And so that was, that was my accomplishment. That was my accomplishment so far. And are you guys just eating all of the bread or are you? Uh, is this part of your care network to distribute the bread? Well, the issue with quarantine is that I have no one to really give it to. So yeah. I have like a few loaves in the freezer. I've been trying to just make smaller loaves. But honestly, like I just like don't eat vegetables anymore. <laughs> I'm just like and I'm like a big vegetable fan. I am just eating bread, cheese, pasta that I am making and... <laughs> That's about it. So, yeah, it has been interesting to see what everyone's sort of quarantine staples have emerged <laughs> as. You know, I feel like they're all sort of converging on one another as people are able to access stuff or not. But yes, cheese seems to be incredibly popular right now. People are really into cheese. I have been disappointed that no one has tried to do their own butter. We need to get people on the butter train. I mean, I could do like a, you know, The Athletic had me do a Q&A that was kind of about baking last week. I am preparing to make my own butter uh, tomorrow, so I could very easily do a big Q&A on, on butter. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, I will, you, you were the one who turned me on to, to the very best book. I think the favorite, my favorite book I've read so far this year, which uh, now the full title of which is Butter, A Rich History. Everyone should read the butter book. You got to read the butter book. By Elaine. How do we say Elaine's last name, do we think? Uh, it's K-H-O-S Rova. Elaine, we're very sorry. But your book is wonderful. People should buy and read the butter book. It's just a nice, it's a real quick read. And it's got like 200 pages of butter recipes in the back. <laughs> delightful let's let's go back to the beat for a second and transition away from bread is the team this is a this is a question that like i should know the answer to so we'll we'll pretend that it's a listener question so that i don't sound like a dope as a person who edits fangrass is the team still doing like regular media availabilities via conference call or are you having to initiate all of your contact with front office personnel players etc it's really kind of i think it varies on a team by team basis the I think like the White Sox and the Reds have been seemingly pretty good about, you know, giving coaches and then also like one player a week or something like that. Got it. We've had calls with Aaron Boone, with the pitching coach, Matt Blake. I think we had one with K 
Cashman right after the player tested positive, but mm-hmm. no, most of it, most of my work, I would say, has been kind of independent. I mean, you know, Yankees PR actually is, you know, willing to willing to help facilitate and got to give it Jason Zillow credit for helping get me in touch with some of the guys for the 1981 Yankees story. But sure. to some extent, it's like, it's just almost easier to try to get them independently, whether, you know, I have direct contact with them or going through an agency or something like that. So it's kind of like you kind of have to gauge on a player, coach, person by person basis, what's the, what's the best way to, you know, reach out, but also kind of understand like, yeah, well, all of these people are obsessed with baseball. Like they are also living through a pandemic. They are adjusting to being home all the time. So it's kind of an interesting balance. Yeah, it's easy to forget that we are all experiencing a collective trauma. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, hopefully they are, at least for the folks on the major league roster, quarantined in, you know, a nice a nice cozy spot, they are also having to grapple with that change in a way that might not make them want to talk to people about their, you know, very cool but goofy day job. <laughs> what were some of the – we'll link to the piece you wrote about the Yankees as they went through the strike, but what were some of the biggest differences in terms of sort of the reaction you've seen to the layoff that guys are experiencing now versus the folks you talked to for your story and what they experienced with no baseball? Because obviously the circumstances are wildly different. Yeah, I think it's – I think it was, it's interesting because the two biggest differences are obviously how guys train now. Mm-hmm. You know, most guys did were like sprints or maybe like playing long toss sometimes if they could find a partner. And that's, that's the thing is that players actually could get together. Right. You know, players I think are getting together kind of one-on-one, but just not in the same way. The other difference I would say is that, well, it happened mid-season and even though the similarity I felt was that the layoff was indefinite, but a lot of players did really think that the season was just over and just stopped working out. Oh, interesting. And that's that's kind of why I thought about it, because I heard a former player talking about the 81 strike, I think in 2018, and he was saying to someone, he was like, yeah, you know, when they sent us home, I just thought it was over. And then they called us back. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I haven't seen a fastball in, in 50 days. Like, and so I think, you know, I think Reggie Jackson was one of the ones who either didn't work out or did very minimal working out. He was having a bad season and he was the union rep. And he, I think he gave a quote to the Times that was along the lines of like, you know, I was clearly doing everything wrong when we went into the strike. I wasn't going to go home and work on the same things. Right. So I think it's just different in that guys now, their training programs are so much more robust, but also there's probably at least still some recognition that the season could come back. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's different because it's not a strike. So there's actually less control. And I think there are, you know, players who are not really optimistic that the season com- is coming back, but they know by now that, like, you know, they can't just sit at home and, and not keep their shoulders flexible, at, right. at, at the very least. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too. I think that whenever there's a work stoppage that is the result of a conflict between management and labor, you know, how long it lasts and the context for it obviously matter, but you get people who are very 
fans who are very persnickety on the back end. They're resentful that they were denied baseball. And I, I really think the biggest difference is going to end up being – it will feel so good. <laughs> it's going it to feel so good when it's back, assuming, of course, that it comes back under – the right set of circumstances. And we've heard a lot this week about some possible plans to bring baseball back maybe as early as May, which seem really unfeasible given the current state of testing. But there's the, you know, the Biodome Arizona plan. And I'm curious, because it will feel so good when baseball comes back, what version of baseball we want when it does you know, let's assume that we can bring baseball back safely. We have sufficient testing. We're able to sort of account for what the league does if a player tests positive. Let's just just like assume away all those logistical challenges for a second, even though they feel very insurmountable. What version of baseball do you want to see when baseball comes back? Do you want it to be as normal as possible or do you want the league to get kind of weird with stuff? I don't really want the league to get that weird. You know, I've Immediately using robot umps thing just kind of upsets me. No, yeah. the technology, by my understanding, is not ready. We don't need to use this as an opportunity to kind of shoehorn something the league hopes for in the future into into this situation. Even if it, you know, even if robots are the original social distancers, I I think my biggest thing right now is, you know, so they've. The league has made it clear, you know, that they want to try to find ways to fit in as many games as possible, Yeah. whether that means pushing the season into November or, you know, pushing the regular season into the end of October, which players seem on board with. My biggest thing is how many games have to be played for the season to be looked back at as legitimate. Yeah. You know, like if I think the absolute, absolute minimum number of games they could play would obviously be 81, but I would really say the minimum would be about 100. But, you know, if you have, I mean, because it's the team I cover, if you have this Yankees team and they have a team that is better on paper than the 103 win team they had last year and they play a 100 game season and win the World Series, which, you know, obviously the playoffs are the playoffs and they're a gauntlet no matter how long the season is. Like, right. do you still look at them as legitimate winners? Or I guess maybe what if you have a team that is more kind of uh, on the bubble? Like if you have, I don't know, if you if you have the A's edge out the Astros in right. the AL West, which I think would be a possibility in a full season. But, you know, if the teams that maybe you wouldn't have expected to make it all the way to the end in the position that they did if, if they cruised through the postseason would you see would you see their win as legitimate and I I just don't want a season that we're going to debate for the rest of time you yeah. know with the way we do with other weird seasons which I mean I don't know maybe that ship has already sailed that ship has probably already sailed <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I had been optimistic. I got questions around this in my chats the last couple of weeks. You know, is this going to be an asterisk season? Yeah. And I think that people mean that in sort of a prickly way, right? Like, you know, when we refer to the strike shortened seasons, we understand that, you know, some of the stats are wonky and we didn't mm -hmm. even get a World Series in some of those. And I have been sort of optimistic that our, our great affection for anything that looks like normal life um, being back will make us maybe particularly fond of wh whoever ends up being the World Series winner this year. Mm -hmm. But I also perhaps should remember that fans boo players they don't like for like 15 years. <laughs> so maybe that's overly optimistic on my part. 
Uh, I don't know. I just want it to be back very badly. The Yankees are in a kind of interesting spot. Dan Zimborski wrote about this at Fangraphs. If, you know, we don't want to think of anyone benefiting from this, and obviously the Yankees would rather be playing baseball right now than not, regardless of their injury situation. So I don't mean to trivialize what's going on, but the the Yankees are in a position where if, you know, there's no baseball till July, they're a better team in theory because of their injury situation has that changed the way that the team is thinking about this year i mean obviously everyone's just trying to get through the next day but they might find themselves with a healthy james paxton and a healthy aaron judge and a healthy john Carlos stanton and suddenly this team that was already starting to replicate some of its injury bad luck from last year is in a pretty reasonable spot i think the thing that's really interesting about this yankees team is they are like they are they are really confident, and I think the big thing that they learned last year was resilience, and that you know even if someone like Aaron Judge is dealing with a you know fractured rib or whatever, that they have talent and they can kind of work with that. And so I didn't really sense you know much much panic or fear. You know, as some of these like 2019 injuries kind of came to rear their heads this spring training. I think they all just kind of have that, you know, we are a championship caliber, not just team, but club and we can get by. But yeah, I mean, I think we all know that like, it will probably keep John Carlos Stanton from missing opening day, which, you know, reputationally, like would have been really, really bad for him, Yeah, whether it should have been or not, you know, it buys judge some time and it makes it so that he doesn't have to push himself. I mean, the thing that I will think is nuts is like, if Aaron Hicks is ready for opening day or, you know, if he only misses two weeks, like that was like kind of a big deal that he didn't get Tommy John until after the postseason was over. And now like no one may really be all that burned for it. So it might not matter at all. It's, it's super weird. Yeah. It's just a very strange, you know, talking about it in terms of benefits is just like a kind of icky way to do it. But there are going to be consequences that no one anticipated that have really significant baseball impact. You know, now, not that the Red Sox were going to be any really real threat to the Yankees with the trading of bets and the state of their rotation. But now the Yankees just don't have to worry about Chris Sale, regardless of what his elbow would have allowed him to do. They just don't have to worry about him because of his decision to get Tommy John. So it's just a very weird, gosh, what a weird year. It's just going to be a really weird year. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, it's like Justin, I mean, I think it is good because these guys wind up playing through so much you know like Justin Verlander got I think groin surgery or whatever and I'm glad that if there's a season that you know he won't be trying to play through an injury so I think I think that you know just even league-wide guys having time to like take care of things that kind of popped up in spring training you know I would I would rather they be healthy than not (laughs) right for sure what's what's the thing and if an answer does not come immediately to mind, we can pause for a moment and Dylan will let it out to pause and it'll be great. What's the thing you're most looking forward to about baseball when it comes back? I'm looking forward to the sense of community, even though the idea of what that will look like, honestly, is really driving a lot of my anxiety. Yeah. I, you know, the, the best thing about baseball for me is like, you know, I love the strikeouts. I love the home runs. I you know, I'm fortunate to get to watch a team that even though I am not a Yankees fan, I'm not rooting for their success. At least they are. They do put an enjoyable product in front of me. Right. But it's it's the it's the crowd and the 
fan community. It's just so it's it's just such a privilege to be in the ballpark when the stakes are high and when there's tens of thousands of people whether it's you know whether I'm working at Yankee Stadium and it's Yankees fans or whether it's on the road it's to me it's it's you know it's neutral but just to be able to be around so many people who all have different circumstances different lives different belief like politically different like different in religion all of these like thousands of different people who are all experiencing the same emotions at once and that is really the thing that I really love about it is the idea that you know look around a ballpark and everyone is thinking the same thing as you yeah and that, that's kind of that's what I hope is able to return even though I don't know how many people are going to be eager to pack themselves in with 50,000 strangers, but I also yeah. believe that a lot of people will. But I also just hope that it's able to, you know, serve as something that feels good for people after all of this goes down. Yeah, I do too. I think that it's a pretty incredible community, even when it's, you know, even when it's bickering or being <laughs> snarky on Twitter, people are only that way because they're so passionate about it. And so it's a pretty special thing. And I hope that we get some version of it, even if it's a socially distanced one this year, because it's a pretty, it's a pretty magical thing. So mm -hmm. what would your, if you were telling a first time quarantine baker what to make mm -hmm. as their first baking project, what would your, what would your recommendation be? My recommendation would be to start with something like a simple, you know, basic vanilla cake or something like that. Mm -hmm. Something that John and I were actually talking about the show nailed it earlier because he finds it like the funniest thing in the world where it kind of hurts my soul <laughs> because baking is such a precise thing. Start simple with something like like a cake or cupcakes, something like that, where you can kind of see how ingredients work together and kind of why. Just even getting to understand, like, you know, that it's that it's an act of chemistry and then also getting the payoff of it, I think is a really nice thing, you know, aside from then just being able to eat cake. But, you know, the process of something like, you know, cookies, cookies can be easy. But I think something like cake, you can kind of start to see the basics and the foundation of it in a way that's pretty simple. My big PSA with baking a cake is do not overmix it. Mm. Like only mix until the ingredients are incorporated because the thing that gives a cake its charm is that it's light and airy. And if you whip the flour for too long, it starts to develop tough gluten. So it becomes more bread-like. So just mix very lightly, but I think that's a place to start, and you and it's just an easy and good place to build from there, and just really kind of get to know the fundamentals. Because honestly, baking takes a long time, and just kind of winging it and screwing up is just kind of <laughs> it's you're you're gonna lose a whole day doing that. Yeah, that is terrific advice, Lindsay. I think we will we will end it there. Hopefully, we will get to talk to you on the show again soon, and hopefully from a ballpark soon. <laughs> Where can folks check out your work and where can they find you on Twitter? They can find my work at theathletic.com slash New York. Um, I'm on there somewhere. My <laughs> Twitter is my name, L-A-N-D-S-E-Y, A-D-L-E-R. 
I'm on Instagram at Lindsay underscore Adler. I've been asking, you know, some Yankees fans about their favorite ballpark memories and favorite things to do just because for myself, I need to remember what it's like to, to participate in those things. So yeah. I am available. I'm available. Awesome. Well, stay safe and be well and make good bread. And we'll talk to you again soon. You too.